to the extent that this movie is very witty, very verbal, I, I could not. Just for that reason alone, it would not get made today. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast, where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle. And now your host, Robert Yannis Jr. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. On this show, we democratize the film criticism conversation by bringing on fans and critics alike to talk about a film of their choice, either something they grew up with or something that they personally connect to or something that they really have something that they want to talk about or have something they need to say. So this episode, I am I am pleased to be joined by Nell Minow. Nell, welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. Well, thank you very much. I'm really looking forward to talking with you. So tell our listeners a little bit about who you are, what you're, uh, what you're up to these days. Okay. Well, I've been a movie critic, I could say really all my life, but I've been a movie critic professionally since 1995. Um, I grew up in a very media-savvy family. My father was the chairman of the Federal Communications Commission under President Kennedy when I was a young child. And he called television a vast wasteland and told the networks that they had to do a better job or they would lose their licenses. Sherwood Schwartz was so insulted by that, he actually named the sinking ship on Gilligan's Island as an insult to my father, the SS Minnow, oh, wow. <laughs> uh, which we, we all enjoyed very much. We're very private. I just came from celebrating my parents' 70th wedding anniversary, so my dad is still going strong and still very involved in making television better. And uh, so I grew up in a family that was very aware of media, very critical of, but very appreciative of media. And I started writing movie reviews for my high school and college papers. I uh, studied film history and criticism and a little bit of filmmaking in college. And then I went to law school and had children and did other things for a long time. And when the internet got started very early on, so early on that I would type my name and people would write back, are you a girl? <laughs> I, <laughs> I started writing movie reviews on the internet. And uh, the next thing I knew, five years later, uh, Yahoo, which didn't even exist when I started, asked me to be their critic. Uh, by that time, I'd written a book about movies. And some radio stations had asked me to come on and be their weekly critic. And it kind of grew from there. So that's that's a good uh, counterpoint a, a little bit for you know for my career because I started I think my first actually published uh, film review was in my college paper uh, also so how have you seen the the industry film criticism industry change in the last you know twenty something years and what kind <laughs> of your I mean uh, tremendously I'm sure but can you speak to that for a second Yeah, it's changed for better and for worse. I mean when I uh, first started reading the Washington Post, I live in Washington, D.C., um, there were five full-time movie critics working for the Post. Now they have one. And movie critics across the country have lost their jobs. It's really not a full-time job for anybody anymore. And that's too bad. We've lost a lot of great voices. On the other hand, uh, the Internet has democratized, a word you like, democratized <laughs> everything, and uh, it's made it possible to go to, say, Rotten Tomatoes and read everybody and form your own opinion and join them if you want to. And I love that. I love the fact that I just started writing reviews online. And the next thing I knew, only five years later, uh, I was a professional. And I, I, I love that idea. And I think that's um, that's very exciting. 
it's it's good and it's bad. Um, you have to uh, try to distinguish, just like any other fake news, between you know the guys who know what they're talking about and the ones who don't. Uh, but I think overall, it's been a great thing for conversations about media. Another thing that's been a huge change is that when I was growing up and I was studying film history and criticism, and I love old movies, I'm happy we're going to be talking about one of the greats tonight. Um, I cannot tell you the amount of time and effort that I spent trying to chase down classic old movies that I wanted to see. There was no cable TV. There was no VCRs or DVDs or Netflix or anything like that when I was a teenager. And so now I love it when I talk to young people and they're as familiar with stars like Barbara Stanwyck and Cary Grant as they are with uh, George Clooney and Tom Cruise. And so that part of it, I think, is great. So in some ways, uh, we've taken a step back, but in other ways, we've taken a step forward. When I was growing up, I grew up in Chicago, and uh, so I was incredibly lucky that I started reading Roger Ebert from his very first review. I was in high school when he started writing. Uh, and I was really captivated by the fact that he was only a few years older than I was. He was in his early 20s when he started writing reviews for the Chicago Sun-Times. But then when I went to college in New York, I couldn't read him anymore because there was no way to get the Chicago Sun-Times in New York. Right. And now, if there's a critic I like, if it's somebody writing for L.A. or somebody writing for Seattle or somebody writing for London... I can read whoever I want. So those are, you know, those are all great. And uh, the sad news, which applies to all of journalism right now, is that it's very hard to make a living at it. Yeah, exactly. It's really switched from a, a critic's market or critic's industry to, to really benefiting the, the moviegoers. Because as you said, everyone that wants to have their voice heard, whether it's on a podcast or on YouTube or, you know, on a, a blog of their own creation, that kind of thing. It's the voices are out there. It's just up to, I guess, consumers to filter through, uh, you know, the ones that I guess match their taste or that are more experienced or, you know, view, view films from a, a, a critical eye that meets their standard, whatever that means. That's right. So um, one thing that, that really I wanted to talk to you about before we get to the film is, so you write pre predominantly these days for RogerEbert.com and also for your site, MovieMom.com. So as a, as a parent, you know, you, you focus on a parent's eye on media, culture, and values. How do you gauge what is appropriate for, uh, for kids and how do you address those in your reviews? Well, I think that the only person who can decide what's appropriate for any individual child is that person's, that child's parent. Right. Uh, I have two children myself. They're grown up now, but when they were growing up, I mean, if they weren't grown up, I wouldn't have time to do this. So I need people to understand that I'm not doing this and raising children at the same time. So, uh, so when my children were growing up, uh, I had one who was fearless about movies, even when he was very young, uh, enjoyed scary movies never had a problem. When he was maybe 10 years old, he came into my study one day and very serious. And he said, I want to talk to you. And I said, what? And he said, I need to see more scary movies. And I said, okay, you come to the right place. Your mom is an expert on movies. We're going to talk about all the different kinds of scary. We're going to talk about suspense. We're going to talk about jump surprises. We're going to talk about gory. And we're going to see something in every category. And you're going to get some idea of what it is that you 
uh, that you like. And, and so that was him and he still will go to scary movies. And then I have a daughter who's like me. I always say that I'm always afraid that Lassie isn't going to get Timmy out of the well. I mean, I get very upset and I don't like scary movies. I like some kinds, I like psychological scary, but Mm -hmm. I don't like, um, I don't like horror movies. And so you have to know your own child and you have to know, I still remember one time my son had uh, two friends over, they were brothers. And one of them was kind of a Huck Finn character, very mischievous, you know, uh, and you really had to keep an eye on him. The other one was very sweet, very quiet. And I showed the kids a movie. I think it was a, I'm pretty sure it was a Star Trek movie. And so not super scary at all. And yet um, the the one who was very sweet was fine with it. The mischievous one who I would have thought was very tough was freaked out. (laughs) And so you really have to know your own kid. And I don't mean just, is this a kid who gets scared? I mean, what kind of scary gets to this kid? And so what I do rather than saying, okay, if your child is seven, good to go. I say to parents, here's, the kind of thing that's in the movie that you should know about so you can make a decision based on what's right for your child uh, and your family. And and just one more thought on that, which is that scary doesn't just mean uh, violence or peril or action. Scary can mean other things, too. So you take a movie like Kung Fu Panda 3, which I enjoyed very much. I thought it was a lovely movie. But there's some very insensitive stuff in there about adoption. Now, maybe your kid isn't going to notice that or care about that, but there are some kids and some families for whom that's going to be really painful. So mm-hmm. whether it's a death of a grandparent or a divorce or, or this adoption or something or the treatment of a disability may not be an issue for some families, may be a big issue for other ones. So I try to think of what kinds of thing a parent would want to know before taking their child to the movie and that let the parents make their own decision about what's right for them and their family. I love that. And see, I, I'm significantly I'm eight years older than my brother. So when I was a kid in the 90s and getting into um, Entertainment Weekly and that kind of thing, they used mm-hmm. to have a section in the very back in, I think, the early 90s um, focusing on on current releases and breaking down like the sexual content, the violence, the profanity, whatever, things like that. So that's a, that's an angle that's always really interested me, just being a, a you know, kind of unofficial third parent to my much younger brother. Um, and now, especially as a parent. So I love that you you find a way to, you know, review the movie, you know, as a movie and then also inform parents, hey, you know, this is this is the situation. So, you know what you're getting into before you walk into the theater, because um, we have a toddler and she you know, there's sometimes we go to I go take her to see a movie that's G or PG. Um, and, and in something, you know, like I think we saw Aladdin recently and the cave, right. of, the cave of wonders thing. She got very un- uncomfortable. Don't do it. Don't do it. I don't <laughs> recommend like taking anybody under five to a theater. Right. The screen is just too big and overwhelming. They don't understand it. For them, it's a lot of isolated scenes. They don't really understand the storyline. Something that you will never imagine will upset them, right. will upset them. And so you want to be very careful about that. So I have two points I want to make. One is that when my niece, who's, who was a very tough little girl mm-hmm. and is a very tough, sarcastic grown-up now. But when she was three, her mother, my sister-in-law, called and said, I'm going to take her to Bambi. And oh, I boy. said, yeah, I said, oh, boy. I said, hey, my mother didn't let me see Bambi. I didn't see it till I was 38, and it upset me when I was 38. So 
I don't think that's a good idea. She said, why? What's the deal? I said, okay, first of all, there's a forest fire that's very scary. And second, Bambi's mother gets shot. Kids are horribly traumatized right. by that. They, either they cry or they don't want to eat red meat anymore. I mean, it's a mess. Do not take her to Bambi. So here's what happened. She took her to Bambi. And uh -oh. she said, it's going to be fine. I'm going to bring her blankie. Remember, she's three. Right. And as I said, three-year-olds don't understand a storyline. For them, it's a lot of individual scenes. So she takes her to the to the movie. She said, I'm going to have her blankie. We're going to sit near the door. If we have to leave, it'll be fine. I'm going to take her. I said, okay. So she took her, and forest fire, kid is fine. Bambi's mother gets shot. She doesn't bat an eye. Everything's great. My sister-in-law is really congratulating herself on doing a wonderful job of being a parent. And then the end of the movie comes, which nobody remembers what happens at the end of the movie. And the, and the child became inconsolable. She was crying so hard because what happens at the end of Bambi is Bambi grows up. Bambi becomes an adult stag mm -hmm. and he's not the little Bambi with the dots anymore on his back and the, and the little boy, vo that great little boy voice. And so the little girl is crying and crying, and crying. She says, where's Bambi? Where's Bambi? And her mother, who is an adult and looks at it, is like, what do you mean? That's Bambi right there. No. Bambi's got the little dots on his back and Bambi's got a voice like a little boy. That's not Bambi. So this is no time to try to explain puberty to a three-year-old. Right. You know, that's my point about anybody under five. They're going to go off in some direction that you can't predict and you can't fix. So don't take anyone under five to a movie theater with a great big screen. That's my first point. My second point is that in addition to warning parents about things they might want to know about before seeing the movie, I think it's just as important that in each of my reviews, I put in some questions for families to talk about on the way home from the movie, because the, the whole point of seeing a movie is to teach us something about the world. And I think that one of the greatest gifts that parents can give kids is to teach them something about how we look at stories and what stories mean to us and what we take from stories, how stories make us more empathetic how they teach us, again, about narrative, about logic, about characters. Well, even when a, to a toddler is watching a movie, you can say, uh, is Pinocchio sad or scared or angry? You know, try to teach them to identify emotions. That's a very worthwhile thing to do. Yeah, that's something we try to do with, with our daughter with music mm -hmm. or when we're reading books to her, you know, just explain, like, oh, do you see the, what's that about? That's, you know, that's about this lesson or whatever, things like that. Um, we actually just read her a book, not to take on a tangent for a second, we mm -hmm. read her a book called Grumpy Monkey that I saw in a, a Target <laughs> or something. And I, uh -huh. I decided to get that out of the library. And the whole point of the story is that the monkey stays grumpy until the end of the story, like throughout the whole story. So they'll, uh -huh. the message being, sometimes you're going to be grumpy. And that's okay yep. to feel that way. And so, like, I try and uh, we try and emphasize things like that with our daughter to help, you know, teach her like, oh, you should hear us. us a soft song and she'll assume, oh, it's sad. I'm like, no, honey, this is pretty. It does not every slow song is necessarily sad. <laughs> you know, teaching that's her to so say, great. yeah. That's, yeah, to, to learn how to identify emotions in others and in herself, that's an incredible gift, but also to teach her that to bring that critical thinking to everything around her. That right. is an incredible life skill and a gift that she will cherish forever rather than just being a passive recipient of media. 
Exactly. And that's part of why I love cinema, because you, you do, in a way, learn a lot about the world watching these fictional stories play out about, as you were saying, storytelling and people and different perspectives and, and you, you about yourself, by the emotions that you feel, things like that. So that's part of why I love doing the show and watching movies and then talking about them with people is because it, it you know, you get to explore that shared experience and how everyone relates to it in a different way. Exactly. And about history, too. I mean, one of the funniest oh, yeah. conversations I've had with my kids when I, of course, used to show them a lot of classic movies. And that led to my first book, which my first movie book, which was um, Movie Mom's Guide to Family Movies with 500 classic family movies. And, and they would watch these movies with me and they would say, what's a telegram? And so I had to explain to them what a telegram was. But that helped them to understand that not everything that we have today has always been around. Right. And how does that affect the way we communicate and the way that we can, you couldn't just pick up a cell phone and call people and find out where they were. And therefore you have these moments in movies where people don't know where each other is. And that's very interesting. Yeah, we were watching Mary Poppins just the other day and Uh my daughter was like, what's that? And says, Mr. Banks on the old timey telephone. Exactly. (laughs) I was like, that's that's what a phone used to look like. (laughs) Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, things like that to put into context, and that's actually mm-hmm. kind of a good segue. So today we're talking about one of the uh, one of the most beloved classic movies of all time, "Some Like mm-hmm. It Hot," directed by Billy mm-hmm. Wilder. So let's listen to a little bit of the trailer right now. Not since Scarface, so much action. Not since the Marx Brothers, so much comedy. Not since the Seven Year Itch, so much Marilyn. The best picture this year will also be the funniest. Good night, sugar. Good night, honey. There's one thing sure, boy never met girl like this before. You've never laughed more at sex or a picture about it. You stay here as long as you like. Jack may have beaten Tony to the sugar, but not for long. You're not giving yourself a chance. Don't fight it. Relax. That was a little bit of the trailer for Some Like It Hot, directed by Billy Wilder. So, Nell, what, what was your decision making process going into selecting this movie to talk about? I think, uh, first of all, it's one of the greatest movies of all time. Fair. Uh, when I uh, happened to meet uh, the then head of the American Film Institute, Jean Furstenberg, I said to her, what's next on the agenda? This was quite a while ago. And she said, we're going to come out with the 100 funniest movies of all time list. And I said, I'm guessing that Some Like It Hot is going to be number one. And she said... Well, of course, I can't tell you. I will just say that that's a very educated guess. (laughs) (laughs) And, of course, it was. It is a great film. Uh, It's a classic. But also, I think there's a lot to talk about. There's so much that's of interest in that movie. The fact that it was made quite a long time ago and yet still is as fresh and as funny and as meaningful and as insightful as anything that we could come up with today. In some ways, it ties in to stories going back to Shakespearean times of cross-dressing characters and hiding their real selves uh, and up to Tootsie or, or, you know, uh, you know, things that are happening today. And um, 
And, and so in addition to being a truly excellent film with some of the greatest performances of all time, I think there's a lot to talk about. So that's why I wanted to talk about it. Yeah, I agree. And it's, it's fortuitous that we are talking about this on the 60th, uh, you know, 2019, the 60th anniversary of the film. And actually, in preparation for this podcast, I ended up watching it on June 1st, which was Marilyn Monroe's birthday, which I did not yeah. plan. You know, my wife and I were just watching it because I, I had seen... It's one of those movies because, you know, because it is an older film and predates, you know, me, my, my presence in pop culture and all of that stuff that I was aware of it and I knew the ending and I knew the general gist of the story and I'd probably seen it at one point but it's not one that I like rewatched a lot and things like that um so I wanted to f- obviously refresh my memory of the film so it just happened to be you know my wife was looking up we were reading Marilyn Monroe while you were watching the movie or like mm-hmm. you know when we had it paused for a second and and she was like oh my gosh it's her birthday today I was like wait what <laughs> yes, there so, were a lot, lot of so crazy. tweets about her. Yeah, there were a lot of tweets about her yesterday. I love Marilyn Monroe. I wrote a paper about her in film school, and I think she is tremendously gifted. Of course, she was troubled. And there's even yeah. a short movie uh, about the making of a, fict- I mean, a fictional retelling about the making of uh, Some Like It Hot and how many takes, you know, legendarily. Uh, Marilyn Monroe had to do, but she's just splendid in that movie. Yeah, I was going to bring up that too. That she, um, I guess, as a as a kid, maybe it's the black and white or or whatever. But I didn't realize that this was actually like the one of her, you know, the tail end of her career. That this came significant, like several years after *Gentlemen Prefer Blondes*, Seven Year Itch*, yeah. *How to Marry a Millionaire*, and all that stuff. So she was well established. I think she may have even gotten top billing on this film. If I if I'm correct. Like, yeah, she she was definitely at the uh, height of her stardom and the height of her abilities. And it's just a gorgeous, gorgeous performance. Um, uh, but she was also very fragile. And when she was late all the time and she was messing up her lines all the time, and they were filming it, somebody said to Billy Wilder, why don't you fire her and get somebody who will who will be more reliable. And he said, you know, I've got an aunt Tilly back in Vienna who would be on time every day and would never forget a line. And nobody will spend 25 cents to go see my aunt Tilly. Uh, You know, whatever we have to do to get this movie made with Marilyn Monroe is worth it. And what he did have to do was that he told um, Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon that they had to be perfect every time because the one take where Marilyn got it right was the one they were going to use. Right. Yeah. I read, I mean, in, in doing research for this episode, I, I read that he like had her, her lines like pasted into like, I think the one, yeah. that, the one scene where she's looking for the bourbon in the different drawers, he had the lines like pasted yeah. in every drawer so that she would, <laughs> so she yeah. would remember her line and get it right and things like that. And then, I mean, it must've worked because she ended up winning a golden globe for this film that the movie won yeah. for uh, costume design and Oscar as well. So, um, and, and it's, it's funny now looking at, at some of her actual work here, the fact that people now like teenagers now will have posters of Marilyn Monroe or like handbags with Marilyn Monroe or like Audrey Hepburn and things like that. And how these actresses from the fifties and sixties and such have become just like bits of iconography. Like I bet most of those people haven't even seen any of those actresses movies. It's a funny thing that they, they become, they've come to symbolize much more than their screen persona. If that makes sense. Of course it does. Uh, I have to tell you that I have a a dear friend I love very much, but he grew up in a very remote 
area and had had almost no exposure to popular culture. And he got, God forbid, if any of us get an injury or an illness, he had exactly the kind you want to have, which is that he'd hurt his leg. So he was laid up for quite a long time, but he didn't feel bad. He was, he was feeling just fine. And so I sent him a bunch of movies and he had never seen this movie. He'd never seen any movie with Marilyn Monroe. And you can imagine, he said, oh my gosh, I've heard about Marilyn Monroe my whole life, but I had no idea. It, you know, she so far exceeded my highest expectations, my highest hopes for what she was. I totally understand now why she is still such a vivid figure in the lives of the culture so many years after her death. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I had a little bit of that experience myself watching it because you forget, you think of Marilyn Monroe, the, the, uh, the image, but you, you, you forget just how much, uh, charisma she has on screen and how, how there's just, she's got that, you know, that it quality. I think she's kind of one of the original it girls in Hollywood where she was <laughs> like, like, you know, where that this, at least this, this age of Hollywood, where it was just, you can't even really put your figure on, finger on it. It's like, yes, you know, she's beautiful and she's sexy and all that. But there's something else that that uh, keeps drawing you, drawing audiences of the time and since back to these performances again and again. Yeah, I have to tell you about the first time I saw the movie. I was a kid and um, it was coming on television. My, my parents, as I said, were very media savvy. They were always interested in making sure we saw the best of what was out there. And I saw a commercial for the movie on television. So this is going to be on television. And it was the scene of her, the, really the first time we see her, where she's in the train station and the steam blows her. And, uh, and she starts to sort of scoot along a little bit. And um, Jack Lemmon says something like, it's like Jello on Springs. <laughs> yeah. And I was, I was so captivated by that. I'm not sure that I had seen any Marilyn Monroe movie at that time. I was only about uh, 11 years old. Um, but I said to myself, I'm just, you know, I noted when it was going to be on and we all made some popcorn and watched it together. And I just, of course, fell in love with it. And I'm, I can't even count the number of times I've seen it. So what is it specifically, I guess, to get this question out of the way, why do you think specifically this film is considered one of the best comedies ever made? Like, like why, why has it endured? Uh, well, I, I think, as I said, that the idea of uh, gender switching is one that goes very far back and is always funny. You think about all the gender switching in Shakespeare um, and the idea of any secret. Really, if you look at comedy generally or particularly romantic comedy, they generally revolve around a secret. Somebody misleads the other party and for a while it works and then it starts to unravel and then there's always that moment where you find out the truth and usually the other person doesn't forgive you for a while and then forgives you. And I think one reason that we see that so often is that it's a very good, not really a metaphor, but maybe a proxy for what intimacy really is. If you think about uh, falling in love, you know, at first you don't, you're showing it, you're on your best behavior. You're not really showing right. each other everything. And then when you really start to tell each other who you are and accepting each other, for who you are and and cherishing sort of the vulnerable and broken parts of each other. That's true intimacy. And how are we going to convey that in a movie? Well, a good way to convey it is to begin with a lie of some kind and then and then scramble that egg a few times. So so that's always going to work. And 
And you'll see that over and over and over again in comedies and especially in romantic comedies. So that you got that. You have three phenomenal performers. Uh, you, you know, I can't say enough good things about Jack Lemmon in this movie. I'm a huge Jack Lemmon fan. And he can do just about anything. He could do drama. He could do comedy. He could do anything. But he's so good. He makes us believe that character so thoroughly that we're totally on board with the idea that he comes back from doing the tango with Joey Brown and is ready to marry him, you know, with his maracas. And so he's great in it. Tony Curtis, of course, impersonating his hero, Cary Grant. You can't get better than that. You've got Mel Monroe. You've got music. I mean, it's really just an irresistible combination. And the, 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 fun, the foundation for all of that is my all-time favorite movie director, uh, Billy Wilder, working with I.L. Diamond on the script. It's just a killer of a script. There isn't a false note in it ever. It's perfectly constructed. It's very, very funny. And unlike, uh, say, Shakespeare, if you look at um, Twelfth Night or As You Like It, where you have the gender switching, something that is very important and very unusual in these mo- for this movie is that uh, Tony Curtis's character begins, Joe, Josephine, begins as a real heel. He's mm-hmm. a user. He's very insensitive. And it's only by becoming a woman to the outside world that he learns what it's like to be on the other side of that equation. And he develops some sympathy. And he becomes a very different person over the course of the movie. And I think it's that dramatic grounding that makes the comedy work so well. Yeah, I was going to ask you later, like, who is your VIP of the film? And I think in a way, <laughs> the, the Tony Curtis character might be mine just because he does uh, exemplify that the evolution. Like, he changes much more than any of the other characters in this film. And, and his character, I guess, has the most, the most uh, growth ahead of him. Uh, would you would you agree with that? Who would you who would you put like who's your which character do you think is performance at least? <laughs> well, there's no no question that he that that it's his story that it's right, about exactly because, because if if the definition of the lead character is that it's the one who learns something, loses something in a story, whether it's a drama or a comedy, that would be him. It's certainly not George Raft, you know. It's not Joey Brown. Uh, it's, it's definitely, uh, Tony Curtis and, uh, and he does a a wonderful job with it. And, and in a way he's playing three parts. Yes. So we have to just take a moment and think (laughs) about that. And, and I love that because just, you know, not to get super heavy about it, but in a way it's very young and that he is breaking apart into the three separate parts of his personality and then able to integrate them and become the true grown-up that that he that he had never quite reached before. The the portrayal of the men in this movie is by and large they're they're all pretty much despicable. <laughs> I mean, I was mentioning this yeah. with my wife. Uh, the only the only man in the movie who behaves himself really is Beanstalk. I think, and that's just because he's trying to keep everybody in line. I mean, you've got the bellhop, yeah, you've got uh, Osgood, and everybody. Is, yeah. So, how do you, you know, how do you think? Because I, I, hundred percent agree with you about how this film has obviously been very influential. 
throughout the cinema since then. I mean, you've seen movies that you mentioned Tootsie. I'm thinking like Mrs. Doubtfire. There's a, like a million movies about a man who has to dress in drag either for love or for, uh, you know, a career or, or something like that. So how do you feel that this film holds up now in a modern context, given what it's uh, what it has to say about gender conventions and uh, and things like that? You know, first of all, I'm very happy that you mentioned the bellhop. I think he plays a crucial role in the movie. He is uh, Josephine's or Joe's first real wake-up call about what it's like to be on the other end of that dynamic. And and so I think that that was a real genius idea to put the bellhop in there like that. He's an operator just like Joe's an operator. Mm-hmm. Um, but Joe doesn't have the ability to respond to him the way that he would in other circumstances and you know he can't he he can't call attention to himself and he also can't let anybody know that he's really a man so um so i think that's a that's very very interesting one of the things that i think is is so surprising and is such a genius part of this film is that if you look at any other movie that was made the same year i am i guarantee you that we would find the gender roles to be antiquated and we wouldn't be surprised by that because our ideas about gender roles have changed very dramatically since that time. And yet this movie, which, of course, was made in the mid-century but takes place in the 20s, mm-hmm. does not seem updated at all. Uh, you know, we recognize that times have changed. And yet if you tried to set it in modern day, it really wouldn't be that different. There, there are no sort of sniggery jokes about being effeminate. Uh, Everything is told in a very um, understanding way, a very accepting way. I mean, when when Joe gets very upset that the the Jack Levin character seems to be losing sight of who he is, uh, it's not because he's not being a man or not acting like a man. It's because he seems to be genuinely forgetting who he is and what they're doing there. Right. And um, and so he's not saying, you know, man up or, or anything like that. Or, ooh, that's disgusting. You're making me uncomfortable. I don't want to share a room with you anymore. Not at all. He's like, he's just like, dude, uh, do I need to wrap a rope around you like uh, Craig T. Nelson in <laughs> Poltergeist uh, to keep you from going over to the other side? And so, you know, so I think it's extremely sophisticated. And I just want to say another word about Billy Wilder, again, my favorite director. Um, Billy Wilder uh, was uh, also capable of the most dramatic, difficult types of stories. He did um, Sunset Boulevard, Stalin uh, 17, and also of, of comedies. But his comedies, unlike his uh, fellow immigrant, Ernst Lubitsch, always had an edge to them. They always had a point of view. Mm-hmm. They always were a reflection of the fact that he came to this country to escape the Nazis. And uh, so he was never going to be able to make a comedy that didn't have something to say. Um, and, and I think that that's one reason that the movie holds up so well. Watching it now with lines like, why would a guy want to marry another guy now that we have where marriage equality is a thing and things like that? It's 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 almost you want to like label it as dated. But because it is the way because the way the story is being handled, 
because um, the characters aren't acting necessarily in that way, and because the the aggression on the part of the male characters is so exaggerated that it plays like like very much like a satire in that regard. I completely agree with you, and I you know I'm gonna now say something that I think a lot of people will disagree with because there's a movie that a lot of people love that I really can't stand. And it's uh, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. I know a lot of people really love it, so I apologize to those who do. But I really hate it. And a good example of why I hate it is the incredible homophobia in the scene where they're in bed together. You think, I mean, now you want to talk about something that's dated. That movie was made only a few years ago, and it's it, it feels like it was made in the 1800s, not the 1900s. It's disgusting. Uh, and you never have that. You know, I mean, Joey Brown does not say at the end of the movie, the greatest last line in the history of movies. He doesn't say, what, you're a man? That's disgusting. I don't want anything to do with you, like Steve Martin does in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Right. He goes, okay, you know, I love you. I love you for who you are. Yeah, nobody's perfect. Uh, as, soon as, as soon as you mentioned planes, trains, and automobiles in this context of this conversation, I, that was the scene that came to mind. I knew you were going to bring up that that moment because, yeah, that is that is a, that is a good snapshot of where we were in the '80s, you know, as a culture regarding that. And this film doesn't doesn't yeah, like you mentioned, it doesn't really have any of those earmarks really dating it in a way. And I guess that does speak to just how how sophisticated Billy Wilder's films really are. I mean, my wife and I, I, I guess we, I, this is not even, again, not even planned, but we like accidentally have been watching a lot of Billy Wilder movies. We watched Sunset Boulevard mm. not long ago, uh, The Apartment. And I, I yes. like that movie. This one really surprises me in a way because you, you think, oh, it's an old movie. It's black and white, blah, blah, blah. You think it's going to have a certain level of... Uh, wholesomeness to it and and there's not you know what i mean and there's not that there's anything like overt about these films but but it is still a question of how and this speaks to your you know your your website as well uh the appropriateness appropriateness of the film for children because this movie deals with uh gangsters there are like multiple people getting machine gunned in in the scene and uh you know, there's uh, homosexuality dealt with in the in the 1950s. In fact, I think I did some research that this was obviously released before the MPAA ratings, but also one of the films that really kind of tested the the Hayes Code uh, of this era of filmmaking. So, what do you think about w- regarding uh, this film specifically? What audience would you recommend for this? And uh, the way that I mean, obviously, it's the way that the film uh, handles that content, but about the fact that. Billy Wilder is able to weave in such mature themes and um, and have them seemingly play for an audience of all ages. Absolutely. And impotence. I mean, how? what's the last time you saw a movie from 1959 that addressed impotence? Here's the thing, is that for some reason, uh, and the MPAA is really whack on this as they are on so much, yeah. if an issue is presented in a comedy, it sanitizes it somehow. And to an extent that is true, uh, to an extent, maybe not, but there's a lot of material. One of the th- reasons I do my website is that there's a lot of material that the MPAA will give a PG-13 to where in a comedy, whereas if it was in a drama, it would get uh, an R or even an NC-17. And if you look at the Austin Powers movies, for one, mm-hmm. um, you'd think about Tootsie, uh, for example. Tootsie, in a way, is less sophisticated than this movie because 
there's a huge freak out over whether Dustin Hoffman is going to kiss a man or not. And that's supposed to be hilarious in a way that I think is never, never going to be as highly charged again, I hope, uh, at happy national pride month to everybody that, that as it was when we saw Tootsie. But again, that was this, 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 this idea of the ickiness or the homosexual panic. You just don't have that in this movie. Now, as in terms of, of what age, uh, you know, I think I was, as I said, 10 when I saw it. I think that would be fine because everything is presented in such a light and subtle way that, um, you know, it's for parents to decide based on what their kids know. But certainly there is material in this movie that is nowhere near as crude as what you see in broadcast primetime television programming. Yeah, it's yeah, as I mentioned earlier, having being as you know, eight years older than my brother, I've always been really mm-hmm. aware of uh, seeing um, I've seen movies on basic cable or even like broadcast like right. major networks at like eight o'clock or like I remember one time seeing um seeing Hannibal, like, on a, like flip, oh, flip it, flipping around. I was not watching because yeah. I've seen that film and I'm not a fan. Uh, right. Flipping around <laughs> middle of the Sunday afternoon and like, like gory, one of the gorier scenes in the film, like involving like guts and all that stuff. And I was like, really? In the middle of the afternoon? They don't, they don't but cut they do. this out? Yeah, exactly. Or the uh, the yeah. opening of Scream, that big shot with Drew Barrymore. Oh on my gosh. Eight o'clock on, a, on Fox. Yeah. And like, you know, yeah. I don't know, 20 years ago or whatever. Uh, yeah. And it's it's like... The, the way that they, it's it's I don't really don't understand the the ratings. It's just all a political thing at this point. Well, all you need to know about the ratings is that it's the studios who run the system and yeah. it runs for their benefit. It was created by the studios to prevent any kind of government oversight, which I understand. But let's not kid ourselves that there's any legitimacy to it whatsoever, which is good for me, because that way I get people coming to read my site as being more reliable. Something like The Dark Knight was PG-13 and something like, I, I can't think, I'm trying to think of a kid's movie that PG-13 or Spider-Man, I don't know, where this, they're, it just, they, they're not on the same level to me. And it's, it, they like to lump films into these succinct categories without really exploring, uh, you know, the, the, the content or the impact that they might have on younger viewers. We could have a whole separate conversation just about the rating system because I have a lot to say about that. But again, I will just mention Austin Powers as a good example of just incredibly raunchy humor in there. And yet it gets a PG-13 because it's a comedy. Right. And then and then uh, a movie like I know this was a big deal last year, a movie like Eighth Grade, which I loved. And I done an episode of this podcast uh, about is rated R, I think, because of language or something. I think there was a couple yeah. of words. And it's like, so now kids that are going through that, that need to see that, to feel like they're not alone, to, to understand that experience with a little more perspective, couldn't even get into theaters to see it. And that kind of thing is ridiculous to me. I agree with you. The same thing was true with the documentary Bully. Nobody needs to see yes. that movie more than middle schoolers. Exactly. Do you? So to that end, do you think this movie would be, it would be difficult to get this film made today or how do you think, how do you think this, this would uh, fit within the current system? I hope it would be difficult to have it made today because I would not want anybody to try to do a remake of it. Boy, that's a good question. I, I think, I think what I'm going to say might surprise you. And that is the single biggest obstacle to getting the movie made today is that movies are made for an international audience today. And one of the biggest 
uh, gulf uh, in cultural uh, viewpoint is what's funny. And so if you look at movies on Turner Classic Movies, you see the movies in the 1930s and 40s. They got this wonderfully witty dialogue, in my opinion, the wittiest movie ever made. Again, going back to Billy Wilder, co-wrote the movie and directed by Howard Hawks is, is Ball of Fire. You have to see the movie like three or four times to get all the jokes because it is so sharp and funny and witty. And it's all about language. And Billy Wilder, who is not a native English speaker, had an appreciation of the English language that was really incredible. So we're never going to see that again uh, in a studio produced film because they have to um, distribute the film. And increasingly, more often, the financing comes from China, which is Mm -hmm. the biggest uh, audience in, in the world right now. And the Chinese don't appreciate American humor and wit and wordplay and all that, why would they? They speak a different language. Do you, how do you feel about the fact that, you know, this film has a, uh, in addition to the drag storyline, there's, there is kind of a con within a con halfway through the film, as you mentioned, when Tony Curtis develops the, uh, the other persona of the, the Shell yeah. Oil Jr., which I yeah. guess, I, I guess is, she thinks his last name is Shell. It's unclear. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> how do you, what do you think about the way that the, the film depicts women, especially the fact that the, the main, the main character that happens to be a woman is Marilyn Monroe kind of doing her, her dumb blonde thing. Uh, do you think that the film portrays women uh, in a positive or negative light? And uh, how do you think it, it reflects upon, upon that? I think that uh, Sugar, which is um, Marilyn Monroe's character, uh, is portrayed in a pretty positive light. She's somebody who has loved not wisely, but too well. Uh, She has had her heart broken many times. She's hoping to learn from that and not have her heart broken again, not be taken advantage of again. So she is kind of struggling. She's come a long way from her childhood. Her father was a conductor. Uh, not a music conductor, but a train conductor. And so she has, um, you know, she may not be a super intellect, but she's got a lot of EQ and uh, resilience. And so I think she's actually a very positive character. Yeah, it's, uh, she's also very self-aware. She's a lot more self-aware yeah. than you would think a character like that would be. Because as you said, she's been through, she keeps falling for saxophone players. Yeah, And she's she going does. into that same cycle. But she understands it. She's trying to do something different. Um, do you think that in any way undermines uh, that her, her character's perceived growth, uh, that she ends up falling for the saxophone player again in the end? <laughs> I don't think so, because she is able to see through him in every way. She's able, you know, she's the one who really helps him to integrate those three different personas. Uh, When he kisses her in his Josephine outfit and it all comes together for her, she knows who she is, she knows what she wants, she knows what she has to do, and she does it. And I, you know, so I think she's she's actually a very strong, resilient, character uh who um having once thought that what she needed for happiness was just to marry for money uh realizes that uh she's happier being with a saxophone player 
yeah, that's how she she kind of uh, self actualizes in a way, I guess, at the end. And I mm-hmm. I think to the the way that the other girls are portrayed really also bucks a lot of stereotypes. I mean, they're they're loud, they're rowdy, they're you know they're they're mm-hmm. uh, they're breaking the the idea of what you think a woman in either 1950 or 1920. Uh, 1959 or 1929 would be, and so I think that also uh, helps to to develop uh, that that side of it as well. Yeah, Sue is a small business owner. She's very tough and very organized. Yeah, absolutely. One thing I wanted to also ask you: Did you do you feel like this, is this your favorite Billy Wilder movie? Like, what would you say is, is oh, up there? Oh boy! <laughs> <laughs> I had to ask, well, especially when you said he's your favorite filmmaker. I'm like, all right, gotta put Nell yeah, on the spot. Yeah. Gosh, uh, can I, (laughs) I, um, I don't rank films that often. I will just say that he is my favorite filmmaker. I love all of his movies, but I, I do definitely have a special place in my heart for this one. I think ball of fire, which as I said, he didn't direct. He, he just wrote the screenplay and Howard Hawks directed. That may be my favorite of his scripts, but I, I love this one. It does feel like he was constantly trying to to push boundaries. I mean, I, I mentioned the apartment earlier and how there's an entire sequence involving a suicide attempt in that film. And, and think, the entire plot of the movie is yes, about. Oh my gosh. And the entire plot of the movie is about provi- you know providing a place for assignations of men and their mistresses. I mean, basically, Jack Lemon is pimping his apartment. Yep. Yep. That's. You know, again, who gets away with that? Only Billy Wilder by just doing it with such elegance and class. Or or in this film with, you know, I'd have to imagine in 1959, the image of, yes, it's Tony Curtis in a wig, but the image of two women kissing like that yes. in the movie must have been like, I don't, I'm, wow. I'm assuming controversial. I, I mean, I wasn't <laughs> around, but I would, I would think As that. As a matter of fact, time, I think it was, it was condemned by, I think the, the Catholic Legion or somebody like that. Yeah. Just, you, you know, you think about all the reasons that they could condemn it, including this is the fa- Valentine's Day massacre. But no, that was the part that bothered them was what appeared to be, but was not in fact a same sex case. Gosh. Yeah. Um, so, so going back to the Billy Wilder thing. So you mentioned that he's your favorite filmmaker, things like that. Uh, and obviously his, that's that go, you, you owe that probably to, uh, a combination of his crackling dialogue, the, the flawless performances, and the fact that he does kind of he does really uh, almost court controversy by really taking on taboo t- topics in an accessible way. Do you see any filmmaker or any film released maybe in the last decade that's even, <laughs> that's even at least attempting or emulating that? Like, what what comedies do you enjoy these days? I guess is where I'm going with this. Boy, let's see. Uh... I think that the funniest film that I've seen in the last 10 years was probably What We Do in the Shadows. Oh, nice. Good pick. I I cannot tell you how funny I think that movie is. Uh, when you find out near the end of the movie who the beast is after hearing them talk about the beast or the whole movie, I laughed so hard uh, at that. I think that was probably the biggest laugh that I've had in a movie in a long time. So I love that. Um, and... Uh, before that, the the decade before that, I got to say Spinal Tap. I don't think there's ever been a funnier movie than Spinal Tap. So those are two of my favorites. Well, this is Spinal Tap is actually scheduled for an upcoming episode of the podcast. So we're recording <laughs> in July. So that will be that'll be that'll be a great Good. conversation as well. Um, I, why do you think that is like, why do you think it's so rare to find a comedy 
that really works these days because I, I agree with you. Like I, it, comedy is probably, I love watching, you know, I love to laugh. I love a lot of the classic movies and, and a lot of, but a lot of the comedies I watch now are nostalgic purposes. Like ones I grew up with, things like that. It's very rare that I see a comedy nowadays where I, I'm really invested in it, where I actually, um, one that I, I want to revisit it again and again. What do you think that modern comedies are really lacking? Because I feel like, I, I mean, part of it could be that they're not really about anything. They're just go jokes for joke's sake. I think there are a couple of reasons. One is the one I already mentioned about the international distribution. If you go to movies as often as I do, uh, which is pretty much every night, um, you will see that more often than not these days, when you're talking about a studio film, there is a Chinese uh, co-producer. And um, I just saw that with Godzilla, which, of course, was originally a Chinese, uh, a Japanese movie. Right. Uh, the original the original one. But, yeah, so the Chinese, but Legendary and the other Chinese uh, companies are, are putting money into all of these films. And if you can't have subtle verbal humor, you're giving away the store. I mean, it's, you know, you can have a lot of slapstick, uh, if you think about a movie like Long Shot, uh, which came out uh, a couple of weeks ago with Seth Rogen, um, it has what I would call slob humor. Uh, there's a little bit of verbal humor in there. Um, O'Shea Jackson Jr., the son of Ice Cube, very funny in it. Uh, but it's not going to reach that zenith. And let's point out that uh, what we do in the shadows is not an American movie. That's a good point. Um, so... Unless it's a independent film, um, you're going to run up against that international distribution issue. And I have talked to people in Hollywood who tell me that uh, it's a lot easier to sell uh, a thriller or a superhero movie or an action movie internationally than it is to sell a comedy because people's idea of what's funny, very, very, very different from one country to another. So I think that that's one key reason. Another key reason, and this applies particularly to romantic comedies, is that romantic comedies depend on keeping the couple apart for the whole movie so they can get together at the end. And it's, come, it's harder and harder to come up with good reasons to keep them apart. The fact that, say, their parents don't approve, sort of the Romeo and Juliet issue, um, or West Side Story, you know, that doesn't seem to be as big a barrier as it once was. There are a lot of things that, you know, will they, won't they have sex? That was a big issue for about 25 years in the movies. And uh, think about all the Doris Day movies. And that doesn't work anymore. So uh, the traditional things that keep the couple apart, that, I mean, honest to God, that's why Twilight is about a vampire, because the person who wrote it couldn't think of a good reason for teenagers not to have sex and she finally had to have him be a vampire because he would kill her or something i mean so i think that those are two big obstacles to making comedies especially romantic comedies yeah i think one of the only ones i can think of in the last few years that's really connected in that way is with the especially with the um with the keeping the couple apart and the, you know the classic format of they're together and then something drives them apart and it's usually some kind of misunderstanding or whatever as you mentioned earlier okay. is crazy rich asians and that's i think yeah. because of the cultural element of it and uh and know, the glamour you know, yeah oh gosh yeah it, it wasn't crazy asians it was crazy rich asians <laughs> and that was there was a lot to look at there for sure 
Absolutely. Um, so I think, yeah, it's comedy is, is a tricky one. It doesn't, as you said, doesn't translate well. And I, you know, I'm a, a, a writer and a creative person. So I, like you, really connect to that, that, that snappy dialogue and that, that certain intelligence that comes with it. Um, it, and I think that's why maybe the the best comedies nowadays, I'm using air quotes, comedies are mm-hmm. satires that really, that yeah. really poke fun at things. And oh, absolutely. I, I'm thinking of, well, I'm thinking of something, and this is not necessarily the best movie, but uh, something like Sorry to Bother You, which at least tries something different and new and has oh a purpose. Oh my goodness. I love that movie. <laughs> okay, that, I, was on my was, top, that was on my top 10 for last year. It went crazy off the rails at the end, but in yes. a really interesting way. Right. And I thought that movie was genius. I was hedging my bets because I wasn't sure which way you were going to fall on that. So I was like, because uh, I like that movie a lot. Uh, I need to revisit it. I haven't seen it since uh, since my screening, actually. Um, but yeah, at least movies like that or uh, are taking are taking topics with, with a, a fresh voice and and really kind of highlighting things, uh, social issues in ways that we haven't ever seen, like literally haven't ever seen before in the case of that film. Um, so I, I think that those are the, 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 the tried and true formulas for comedies, romantic or otherwise, is really dying off. And I think the box office numbers are starting to reflect it. I mean, uh, I think, you know, every once in a while you get something that that is really smart but a lot of times critics will appreciate it and then it'll go right under the, the radar of moviegoers. So obviously, the last couple of weeks, the big story has been Booksmart, which on film Twitter, everyone is losing their minds on, but nobody's going to see it. I don't get that because I'm going to see it for a second time and I'm going to buy a ticket, which I don't do very often because I get to see everything for free. Right. I loved it. And so boy, talk about a movie about female friendships. I mean, I just thought, I thought it was brilliant and funny and smart and great and surprising and beautifully directed. And I thought I was going to pass out during the Barbie scene. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh. That was so funny. And uh, obviously I'm, you know, as far as representation, that movie is like all over the place. And uh, I'm clearly not the target audience because I'm not really represented in there, but it it really connected with with me. Like I was laughing the whole, I'm easily going to be in my top 10 for the year. So me too. uh, Yeah, I I think um, it's it's unfortunate, but I think I guess it's it it's up to people like us to champion these movies and try and get the word out about things like Booksmart or Sorry to Bother You. And uh, but that's a good example of what I'm talking about. That one has got very witty dialogue. And it's because it's a small independent film and exactly. they can, they don't, they don't need that international distribution. Right. Right. Uh, we really went on, on off on a tangent there. Is there anything about some like it hot <laughs> that you wanted to talk about before we start uh, closing things down here? Well, I mentioned to you before, my daughter is a costume designer in Hollywood and we cannot leave this movie without talking about the costumes. Yes. Oscar winning costumes. Oscar-winning costumes from one of the great costume designers in the history of Hollywood. Ori Kelly did all of Betty Davis's outfits, including her iconic clothes in Now Voyager. Uh, and uh, we just have to mention how spectacular they are and how great Marilyn Monroe looks in them. Yeah, I agree 100%. It's, certain outfits looked like like you could tell that they were towing the line between how revealing they could be and also the times, things like that. Uh, and yeah, there's really a certain... She's ele- pretty elegance. close to naked. Right? She's pretty yeah. close to naked in one of them. Yeah. There, there's mm-hmm. that one scene where I said to my wife, I'm like, wow, she looks like 
really like low cut, like almost like busting out of one of her dresses. And then my wife was, no, no, there's fabric up on top, like filling that. Like, uh, so, yeah. so like the chest but, part is, is, uh, you know, transparent. And then, uh, it still has that, the shape of being, being a low cut dress. So I thought that was really, uh, really subtle little things like that, where they were able to toy with, um, how, how revealing, how sexy they let Marilyn Monroe be without, while still fitting, you know, it's still the fifties after all. That's right. So yeah, absolutely. Good call to bring that up. So I have one, one more question that I wanted to run by you and then we can start winding down. So my wife and I were talking about this, like, as, as I mentioned, we watched the apartment recently, we're watching this, uh, this recently, and I was really bringing to her attention, like about how unique Jack Lemmon's skill set, skill set is, and especially in his comedies. Do you, who do you think, in your opinion, I mean, there, maybe there isn't one, but who do you think is kind of the, the modern day equivalent of a Jack Lemmon as comedically? Like, as far as that whole nebbishy thing that he's perfected so well in films like The Odd Couple and The Apartment and Some Like It Hot, uh, is there anyone out there kind of doing that? I was trying to, to mention to my wife, I'm like, it's speculate, and I was kind of coming up at a loss. I guess maybe Jason Sudeikis is fresh in my mind because of Booksmart. Oh, yeah, but I'm like, Booksmart. Maybe, maybe that's why, because he does kind of that, that similar he, vibe. He, he, he can do drama. He's done very, very well in drama, but he hasn't had quite the opportunity uh, to do it uh, yet. Um, but I'm going to surprise you. I'm going to say that uh, John Hamm, um, okay. who comes, of course, from drama, and it's certainly no one's ever going to call him a nebbish, but boy, he is so funny when he wants to be. In the movie Tag, for example, oh, yes. he is hilarious, and he's great in a movie like Marjorie Prime. He plays a android. Uh, he just seems to be endlessly talented to me. And the reason that I think of him as um, Jack Lemmon is that he has that same sort of all-American, slightly preppy look that Jack Lemmon did. And I, uh, uh, by the way, I just want to mention a movie that I recently rewatched, one of my all-time favorites, because it also stars Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon, and that is The Great Race. I highly, highly recommend it. And Jack Lemmon plays more than one role in it and he is insanely great in that movie and it is a brilliant wonderful movie directed by Blake Edwards uh and I watched it again you know I loved it when it first came out when I was a kid and I just marveled all over again at what a brilliant movie it is yeah Jack Lemmon is pretty great in in, in just about everything, everything. I mean, even growing great. growing up I you know I saw him in things like the grumpy old men and the sequel things like that oh, like, yeah. this guy's funny like what's going you know on what? with that? If you if you watch him in his very first movie, uh, it should happen to you with Judy Holiday. He has such a naturalness and a uh, a quality of um, just being a guy you want to be around. Uh, he's he's wonderful from the very beginning. I think you know when I was writing my book about movies, I rewatched a ton of movies, and he was the one I came away. He's kind of as my MVP of my book because everything I saw in him, he really blew me away. And of course, Days of Wine and Roses, you know, he can be, he, he you know, or Glengarry Glenn Ross, he can just break your heart. And and he has a way of, of coming across as sympathetic, even when he is, as you said, basically pimping out his apartment in the apartment yeah. or, or trying to get Marilyn Monroe drunk on a train. In yeah, this movie. It's just, right. But you're still like, well, well he, you know, he, I'm still, you're still kind of on his side, you know? 
he's the bad guy in the great race and and you will love him and his sidekick is peter falk oh wow. i'm telling you you're gonna love that movie and and tony curtis's sidekick is keenan Wynn. and wow. the love interest are you ready you're gonna get this movie right away when you get off with me you ready natalie okay. wood oh wow yeah okay i need to see that <laughs> it also has it also has the biggest pie fight in the history of movies that's see that's the biggest selling point so far <laughs> now it has been such a pleasure having you on the cookie table podcast can you tell people where they can find you on social media of course uh i'm the movie mom on facebook at movie mom on twitter and of course my blog is moviemom.com you can also see my writing at rogerebert.com where i'm an assistant editor and uh, at thecredits.org, which is the official website of the Motion Picture Association. Great, great. Thank you so much, Nell Minow. I'm going to go and find The Great Race on some streaming service now and check that out. And uh, I definitely would love to have you back on the show at some point. Uh, just let me know whenever you, whenever we'll have to connect over social media and see if there's another, another movie we could talk about because this was so much fun. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Nell. Have a good one. If you're interested in joining me on the show to chat about one of your favorite films, head on over to crookedtable.com slash guest. Or you can consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash crookedtable. Of course, you can always find more podcasts, reviews, videos, and other movie-related goodies over at crookedtable.com. Until next time, this has been the Crooked Table Podcast, and I've been Rob. This has been a production of crookedtable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of the little KED.